read Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 22. Hear God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possessions and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your, unintended, of your untended vine. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price, for he sells to you according to the number of years of crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what? Shall we eat in the seventh, uh, seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until the produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful again for your word. We thank you for uh, the concept of Jubilee. I hardly feel I could do it any justice this evening, but we ask you that we might begin uh, to grapple with this uh, so precious an idea, so precious a thing to you, and that we might see ourselves even as participating and partaking of it even now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sorry I've been out of the evening pulpit for, for three weeks. That uh, that wasn't the plan. The plan was presbytery. I didn't plan to get sick, and I continue to be grateful uh, to Elder Dave Stevens for filling in. But let's not lose sight of, of where we are. Uh, we are 
in chapters 23 through 25. More broadly speaking, we are in the holiness code. Uh, and, and if you remember in, in, the, in the prior sermon, there was something of a strange narrative event. In fact, there's only two narrative events in this book of laws. Uh, the director of worship of the Old Covenant, and that would be the blasphemer's tale as we looked at it last time. The only other recorded incident of, of narrative or history is uh, the sins of Nadab and Abihu. And so uh, fascinating to see the laws of, uh, foiled uh, by man's disobedience. But that uh, serves to underscore the need for the law all the more. But the context in chapters 23 uh, through 25 is not the blasphemer's tale that fits in in its own way. The, the context here is the, the, the concept of sacred time or Israel's calendar. Time which is devoted uh, to the Lord. And so chapters 23 through 25 belong as a unit, emphasizing this important theme, which we will not finish this evening, though uh, we're nearing its end. And, uh, and, and chapter 26 has to do with the covenant curses and, and blessings. Well, if last time, uh, before the blasphemer's tale, it was the annual feasts, this time the emphasis in chapter 25 is on the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. So those are the two main concepts. There are several key principles uh, that we find in this text. Not surprisingly, we've just sung about it in two of the hymns. And we find this is the key concept throughout these chapters and really throughout the Bible. And that is the the, the key emphasis on Sabbath. Israel's not told here to keep the Sabbath, though. You should remember that when God introduced the idea of sacred time in chapter 23, verse 2, he immediately spoke of the Sabbath as the key Command in verse three, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, these feasts or the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. He begins with the Sabbath. Six days uh, work shall be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Well, let that stay in your mind. Verses two and three. God is assigning holy convocations and he's assigning the first place to The Sabbath. That emphasis then spills over into our annual feasts, which we read of uh, in chapter 23, following verse 3. For they too, God tells us, were like Sabbaths to keep, in that they were holy convocations in in which no work was to be done and in which uh, religious worship was to be observed according to the feast. Indeed, uh, they are even at times, in in chapter 23, called Sabbaths. And the number of seven looms large throughout, especially the seventh month in which most of them occur. And so when we come to the festival of years, the festivals of years, the Sabbath, uh, the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee, are we surprised once more to see them clothed in the language of Sabbath? And is it not clear that the Sabbath was to dominate the religious consciousness of Israel? And what was the point of this? The strong emphasis 
on the idea of Sabbath, not just the weekly Sabbath, but so many other things being called Sabbath or being clothed in the language of Sabbath. Well, certainly it had the effect of bolstering Israel's esteem of her weekly Sabbaths on the one hand, while on the other hand, and at the same time, working in the other direction, namely giving the same esteem that Israel was uh, to hold her Sabbaths in now to these feasts. They were to regard them as they regarded their weekly Sabbaths. Indeed, no greater honor could be given upon any religious day. Nor was there any designation uh, that could so well underscore their importance as to call them Sabbaths to the Lord. And so all that belonged to the Sabbath belonged to them, the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, and so on. The concept of rest, first and foremost, you find that in chapter 25. But Sabbath goes well beyond that. You find the ideal of leisure to worship God, free of worldly care, which would have been true of Adam in the garden. It was true of Israel in the wilderness, and it needed to be true of Israel in the land. Beyond that, these various festivals were so many reminders of God's creative majesty as continual pointers uh, to God's creative act of making the world and then resting on the seventh day. Reminding her continually that the world belongs to him as its creator. And thus time belongs to him as well. And so does the land that they were about to occupy. But most importantly, the ideal that, uh, that Sabbath represented, something that could never be enjoyed by uh, Israel's or, or our earthly Sabbaths, namely that of a heavenly rest. Uh, every earthly Sabbath was a pointer to that heavenly Sabbath that the Lord entered and that he promised to humanity as the goal of his existence. Really, I would say that was uh, the heart of this song that we just sang together. Thine earthly Sabbath, Lord, we love, but there's a nobler rest above. To that our laboring souls aspire with ardent hope and strong desire. Every Sabbath that Israel and that we keep was an, became a vehicle of expressing the very hope, the longing for the heavenly rest of which our earthly Sabbaths are but a type. And with so many earthly foretastes of this, how could this hope not be cherished in the bosom of Israel's piety? Well, that brings us to the second key concept, and that is the sabbatical year, verses 1 through 7. The sabbatical year was to be observed once every seven years on the seventh year, once uh, Israel had entered the land. Now, you may already know this. Maybe you don't. We have no record in Israel's history of her ever observing the sabbatical year. We do have a record of the prophets condemning uh, them for not observing it and thus being spewed out of the land. Uh, so it seems fair to say that Israel never observed a single sabbatical year. Although if we know anything about Israel, I would uh, just ask, can we be surprised at this? The essence of the command was agricultural. It had to do with the land. It had to do with farming. And what the Lord is saying is actually quite surprising. It's something I confess to you that I don't understand. And it's something I doubt that any of you understand. But the Lord was saying that the land must rest. 
Now, surely there are theological uh, concepts here that, uh, that, well, if time permitted, not only here, but in my weekly study, uh, could be explored. The way that the land was a type of heaven. There's something there. The land must rest. What a fascinating idea. The question which I have and which you may have is, was there any benefit agriculturally speaking to the land itself? Is this a good practice? Uh, I don't know. I see people shaking their head. Maybe this is an obvious point that I don't, I don't realize, but you do. <laughs> all right. It's not such a mystery after all. So it was good for the land. I'm telling you what you already know. The land must rest, God says. The land must have its Sabbath. But what is more important to recognize is that this was a religious festival. This was itself a Sabbath. And as was the case in Israel's Sabbaths, so in the case of the sabbatical year, it was preeminently an act of faith. For there was the temptation with regard to the sabbatical year, so with our own weekly Sabbaths, uh, to, to gather on Sunday, so to speak. To gather on the sabbatical year to do our labor because, well, we really doubt God's provision. We, we doubt his providence. We doubt his promises. This was preeminently an act of faith. It was like a much larger version of the manna episode in the wilderness. They were not to gather on Saturday. They must rest and trust that God's provision would be adequate. Even though there would be no gathering on Sabbath. And so here God says, as the, as the land is resting, they must eat only that which the land yields of itself, trusting fully in God's provision for the entire year. Once more, we find that the language of Sabbath dominates. Uh, I, I think uh, in verses 1 through 7, the Sabbath occurs in every verse. It was to be a Sabbath to the Lord, observed by the people. Uh, once again, chapter 23, verse 2, it was to be a holy convocation of rest and worship. Here, Matthew Henry makes eight observations uh, concerning the sabbatical year. He says, first, that God was indicating to the people that he was their landlord and they his tenants. There you have the sense of, of Sabbath. He's the creator. We occupy his realm, his world. Second, it was to be a kindness to the, to the land itself. Now, apparently, we're all agreed about that. Third, and I attach great importance to this, it was to provide more leisure for worship. Now, just imagine that. Now, I can't imagine that, that anyone who did not love their earthly Sabbaths could ever imagine this being a blessing. But to those of you who love the Sabbath, just think of what an entire year of Sabbath would mean. For the people of God. It would be uh, a blessing of blessing. Uh, if, if our weekly Sabbaths are a blessing. Here is a double blessing. God is providing for the people. And you can appreciate the tragedy that she never uh, observed it. She missed out the blessing that she might have had. Fourth Henry says. It was to be an occasion. Of charity and generosity. Fifth. They were taught the lesson of providence that man does not live uh, by his own industry, but that he must trust from the Lord to provide all his needs. Sixth, 
They were reminded of the easy life man enjoyed in paradise, which is another key concept of the Sabbath, always bringing us back to the beginning where there was no labor, there was no toil. There was only fruitfulness. Seventh, they were, they were taught to consider how the poor lived. And eighth, the sabbatical year, he says, typified the spiritual rest which believers enter into through Christ, as well as the eternal rest they hope to enjoy in heaven. But then from that framework, we come to the third point, and that is the year of Jubilee, which was itself uh, another sabbatical year, verses 8 through 17. This is called a Sabbath of years, although I think we could call the sabbatical year also a Sabbath of years. But this was really uh, a, a, sabbat- a Sabbath of sabbatical years. That's really what we have. And if, if you follow the progression of chapters 23 through 25, uh, you have the seventh day first. And then you have the seventh month where all the annual feasts were to be held. And then you have the seventh year. And finally, you have the seventh cycle of sevens followed by the 50th year. All of them observed as Sabbaths to the Lord. And it was to commence, again, no surprise here, on the seventh month, along with all the other festivals, just as the Day of Atonement was coming to a close. This was no coincidence, for it was as the mourning for sin on that day drew to a close. You remember what the Lord said about afflicting their souls, mourning for sin. It was a Day of Atonement. It was a Day of Repentance. Just as that drew to a close, so the trumpet was to be blown and the 50th year was to commence with the sound of the trumpet consecrated as a year of jubilee. And so the sense is clear that with atonement coming to a close, now uh, jubilee was to be a time of great rejoicing accompanied by the release of the captives and the forgiving of debts and so on. What is interesting to notice, and and I was fascinated to see that even Matthew Henry was in trouble over this point. And, 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 And even he, for all of his faith, could not seem to accept this. But what we actually read here is that one sabbatical year was followed by another. They were to observe a sabbatical year on the 49th and the 50th year. For it was to be, in essence... Another sabbatical year, only with added features. All of the features of the sabbatical year plus some. And so that raises the question, and if you read Matthew Henry, I know some of you do. He asked the question, I'm asking the question, does that mean that two sabbatical years were observed in succession? Now, I don't understand how Henry concludes that it doesn't mean that, because it's, it's just obvious on the face of the text that it does, in fact, mean that. The 49th and the 50th year were to be sabbatical years. Uh, Let us be honest. This is a stunning requirement for all of the faith it took to observe the sabbatical year. Now another one on the 50th. And yet at most at the same time we could say once in a lifetime. Unless any should use this to their advantage in business dealings with others. God says in verses 14 through 17. He says, you have to adjust your business calculations. You're buying and you're selling in its relation to the sabbatical year. You cannot sell it at full price on the 49th year. So on and so forth. 
There's a fascinating kind of egalitarianism found here. It's really a bad word today, but I don't ever think of it as a bad word in the context of the Christian community, the people of faith. It's a wonderful world, uh, and it's, it's something uh, that I really delight to find here. And so I say it again, a, a wonderful kind of egalitarianism found here, much like we find in the early church where they shared all things in common. It doesn't quite go to that extent here. But what we do find, and this is the kind of thing you just, well, it just sticks with you and you think about it. Uh, the Lord is saying this, that the rich were prevented from accumulating too much at the expense of their brother, while at the, the same time the poor were kept from destitution at the hands of the rich. Ordinarily, in the course of, of history, and certainly I think we see this in the modern times, there is no check placed upon this process, this unfolding process. Uh, the ordinary course of things is this. The rich are able to accumulate more and more with nothing stopping them. While the poor lack increasingly the resources to regain what they have lost. But do you see how God, in the case of Israel, makes provision for this societal ill? The year of Jubilee was to be a time when debts were forgiven. Land returned to its original owner. Slaves were to be returned to their families. It was a time of reset, if you will. And so if the land in the sabbatical year was the focus here, the focus is upon the people themselves who occupied it. The jubilee was for them. A time of restitution, a time of Redemption. And it would seem that the Lord took special delight in giving this law. He loved the year of Jubilee, even if Israel didn't. For it foreshadowed even, something even greater. As the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 3. It foreshadowed the coming of the Lord. The righting of wrongs that would be represented in his coming. Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 3 places the whole idea of the year of Jubilee in prophetic form. And the imagery of that year is cast over the coming of the Lord. What will that coming be like? It will be like this. God is saying it will be like the year of Jubilee. And before we come to that, I want to notice one last thing about the text. And that is, as a fourth point, what we have in verses 18 through 22. We have commands and we have promises. And so often in scripture, those two things go together. Notice how this section comes in here. God tells them three times to keep the command in verse 18. He says, you shall observe my commands, you shall keep my judgments and perform them three times. Be sure to do this, God says, although he knows that they're not going to do it. And why must he say this? Well, because he knows our frame. He knows that we are weak and full of doubt, especially when it comes to our earthly needs. The one thing that we are most jealous for and least willing to give up as an act of faith are our earthly possessions, certainly our food or the prospect of having food. That is where the test of faith we say to God goes too far. But you think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and he makes that 
preeminently and precisely the test of faith, the hallmark of his children. It's the Gentiles, he says, in Matthew chapter 6, who are so anxious about what they're going to wear, what they're going uh, to eat, and so on and so forth. This kind of anxiety fills their hearts and their minds with worry all the days that they live. But Jesus says, my disciples live a very different life. Because they are aware of providence. And they rest and trust in that providence. They are not afraid of going hungry. And even if they do, they know that their heavenly rest and their treasure is stored up for them in heaven. And so they're free of care. They're free of worry. And they're full of faith. But that is precisely what God is testing here on the 50th year. He's saying, keep my command As a test of your faith. Especially on the year of Jubilee. A double test. But he doesn't leave things there. He doesn't say be sure. To keep my command. And then wait and see what will happen. He tells us. Or he tells them. He makes this a matter of faith. Just keep the command and see what I will do. It's kind of like when God says. Just give. And see if I won't make you to abound. He says, the the land will yield its fruit. You will dwell in safety and I will command my blessing. That's the kind of language which should get a hold of your heart. It should get your attention. I will command my blessing. It's the same language that we find in uh, whichever psalm it is. Is it 118? I can't remember at the moment. But where the Lord says, uh, blessed are our brothers dwelling in unity for there I will command my blessing. And isn't that what the believer wants more than anything else? Not only that he should dwell in the presence of God and have the hope of heaven, but that God even now should command his blessing on our lives. But the question that was before Israel is the same question that's before us, and that is, is that what we really want? Do we really want God to bless us? Or are we just content with our earthly treasures, with our crops, with a full belly? With a, te- with, a, with a cupboard and a plate full of food. Were they content merely with the passing of seasons and years without interruption? It's true if they lived like this, and they did live like this, they would have their reward. They would have full bellies. They would have harvest year after year, though not forever. We'll see the Lord telling them what's about to happen down the road for their disobedience. God would drive them out of the land. He would curse the crops and so on. But for a time, there would be no interruption in the yearly harvest. There would be no disruption in the accumulation of wealth. But one thing would be absent. And that is God himself and his blessing. And thus the opportunity for faith would be missed. And the sad testimony of Israel is she never believed. Every test the Lord placed before her, she failed. Always. She always doubted. And so there never was blessing from heaven. She was content merely to eat her crops. She longed not for the rest promised in the type. And thus she perished in the land unbelieving. Just think of that. We read in Psalm 95 quoted in in, in, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. That that the, the wilderness community perished in the wilderness unbelieving. But it wasn't any different once she came into the land. The same thing happened. She was in the type of heaven and yet she perished there unbelieving. And she never arrived at the blessing. Where? Oh, where, Bonar asks, was that anxious longing for the redemption, not only of our bodies, but of the land itself, as Paul later expresses in Romans chapter eight. 
And was not this type, the, the sabbatical year as well as the year of Jubilee, a fitting expression for this hope? Her longed for deliverance. And yet, in neglecting this type, what did she testify about her true treasure and her true hope? That it was all stored up in this world. And that she would not trust the bare word of God for her provision in the meantime. The question was this, can God not be taken at his word? Is that not preeminently the issue of faith? Is that not what Abraham, Father Abraham did? And yet Israel did not. But that brings us to Christ in the year of Jubilee as a final point. And this is uh, ever the delight in preaching Leviticus. I, I, I knew it would be this, the case, but I, I don't think I realized how much it would be the case. There is hardly uh, a word uttered that you don't find in some form in the New Testament. And so are we surprised to see with the concept of Jubilee, our Lord, as he commences his ministry in Luke chapter 4, opening the scroll and reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Do you understand And do you appreciate the significance of this? And he not only reads the words, but he expounds them. And he says that the words are fulfilled now in their hearing. Now at last, the year of Jubilee would be observed. Israel may have failed, but the Lord would fulfill and make up for her failure. The Lord has come. And now that he has come, do you see what else is true? And how he accomplishes it. The first thing we see is that he proclaims uh, liberty to the captives and so on. In other words, Jesus brings the year of Jubilee through his preaching ministry, which is precisely how he begins it. And this is always how God uh, operates. He proclaims good news to those who long to hear it. And all through his ministry, that's what we find. We find a ministry that is full of preaching. And what did Jesus preach? Well, he preached the the message of Jubilee. He declared all along that in him, now that he has come, that there is true liberty for the sons of God. That's the greatest message that has ever been preached. And it was actually true. It was actually realized in the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ. He was preaching a message of spiritual liberation. To those who were spiritually poor and spiritually captive. Which is the truest kind. And Jesus says, as you know, in John chapter 8, if the son makes you free, you're free indeed. And how does he do it? He does it by dying for them. And once again, we find a perfect antitype to the type. For what was the day on which the year of Jubilee began? It was the day of atonement. There is no surprise whatsoever, beloved, that Jesus brings the year of Jubilee by his death. We find in his ministry the day of atonement and the year of Jubilee are brought together once more in the most wonderful way. Only this time, not in the way of anticipation, but of fulfillment. He brings the fullness of both concepts, atonement and Jubilee, and he brings them together. Jesus, by his coming and his dying, makes a full end of sin, atonement. And thus he ends not only the slavery of our sin, releasing the captives, but he also, as a result, brings in a time of great joy and gladness. 
a time of jubilee. And such indeed, Jesus tells us, uh, is what the sons of God enjoy truly. They have been set free and now they are filled with joy. Here indeed, he says, is the acceptable year of the Lord. Not in the year of Jubilee in Israel's calendar, never once observed, but in the year of the Lord's coming. And see what blessings begin once his ministry begins. So great are the blessings he brings and so longed for that his coming is clothed in the language of Jubilee. And nothing short of his coming into the world could ever realize the type which was found in the 50th year. Not another year of rest for Israel had she ever bothered to keep it. No, indeed, for even then. She would not find contentment in the type, but only a hope for what it pointed to, stirred up more strongly in her heart and cherished with greater vigor. But she could never be satisfied and she could never be full until Christ should come. Only when Christ came into the world would Israel find what she was seeking. Those few at any rate who had faith, and it was very few, but there were some. We read about them in the beginning of the gospel, that the hope of the Messiah was stored up in their heart. It was cherished. And they loved to hear what he had to say. A time of blessing. A time of liberty. The acceptable year of the Lord. Can you imagine the joy that they experienced at hearing this word? And so I ask you in closing. So we find the year of the Lord's coming as the year of Jubilee. Are you glad that he came? Have you found liberty at his hand, even the liberty of the sons of God? The sad testimony of Israel is that she never found it, for she lacked faith. And with every test, even with the coming of the Lord, the final test, you might say, she always turned aside in unbelief. But how does it go with you? Does your soul fare any better? Which is just to say, what do you make of the Lord's coming? Do you have faith? Have you heard the words which Jesus uttered at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4 and realized that he was preaching to you? And that if indeed you have heeded the message and believe that he has set you free indeed and has such a message filled you with joy. Do you realize that if you are free, if he has made you free, you are free indeed. Uh, Or to use the language of Paul, uh, for liberty Christ has set us free. Stand fast now in your freedom. Do you realize what a tremendous blessing this is? And if you have realized it, then I say to you, rejoice and be glad for the acceptable year of the Lord has come. Amen. And let us sing praise to God, uh, a hymn of Jubilee, hymn 392 in the blue hymnal, hymn 392.